Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. I'm very pleased today to introduce Dr. Per Esben Stockness to the podcast. Per is a distinguished psychologist and economist and chair of the Centre for Green Growth at the Norwegian Business School. He's a pioneer in the field of climate change psychology, which he studied for 20 years. Per is the author of numerous books, including the acclaimed What We Think About When We Try Not To Think About Global Warming. He's also a serial entrepreneur and co-founder of the clean tech company Gasplas. So thank you very much, Per, for taking the time today to speak to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Thank you. So I'm really looking forward to talking to you about your work uh, on the psychology uh, around how we think about climate change and um, some of the other work you're doing as well. Um, you, you were at the New, uh, New, New York during the uh, UN uh, Climate Week. Yeah, I was indeed. Uh, mainly focused around the TED conference that was the TED Global conference that was held and uh, had a connection to the climate uh, and the global commons uh, issue. Right, right. Now, how long have you been researching and thinking and, and observing how people respond to uh, climate change? Um, I'd say like a 20 years, approximately. Right. So, um, but um, it's been kind of accelerating over the last, uh, let's say, eight. Right, right. So just very quickly, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Because I know you've got an unusual background, you bring different skills and expertise to bear. I started my uh, research like 20 years ago, looking into um, long-term strategy for corporations and governments, um, and then progressing there into understanding economics more deeply, because I was... Uh, amused and curious and confused about how economists were choosing to understand the world. So I took a PhD in economics that became also quite interdisciplinary, uh, including sociology and, um, and the history of um, discourse, economic discourse. So, uh, but uh, over the last eight years, I've been focusing on climate strategies at Norwegian Business School and also wrote this book, uh, What We Think About, and we try not to think about global warming. Yes, absolutely. And so what, what's going on? I mean, I, I guess, uh, how would you say uh, that the, the thinking has changed broadly? Uh, I know uh, different countries, uh, it's more extreme and so forth. But just get a sense of how, uh, how people thinking about climate change has been changing or is some things remain unchanged? Mm. It's kind of useful to distinguish between four main climate uh, attitudes uh, or four dimensions in your climate attitude. And the, the first is, do we see global warming? Yes or no. Um, the other is, uh, is it human cost? Yes or no. Uh, the third is something to be concerned about, uh, meaning is it bad? Yes or no. And the fourth is, uh, are we going to solve it? Our, our humanity... Uh, going to be able to keep temperatures below two degrees by 2100 to put it more precisely yes or no what's your attitude um and when it comes to the first is the global warming going on um we're kind of winning the debate it's 
a clear majority of uh, most people in most nations. Uh, on the second, it's a little bit worse, it's a human cost, um, but still uh, more than 50% in most uh, Western countries uh, say it is human cost. Um, and then the most paradoxical is maybe the third when it comes to, is it, some, is it bad? Is it something we should be concerned about? And um, there it's uh, less than 50% to say it's clearly um, it's a high-level concern. Uh, and the weird thing is that from 1990, approximately, when the survey started in some countries, uh, it was higher than today. It was about like 7 out of 10 or 70% who said either very or somewhat concerned about greenhouse effect and climate change. And then as we've had more and more IPCC reports and 30,000 approximately climate science studies published and lots and lots of media articles, um, the, the population in rich Western countries in particular have become less concerned over time. Uh, that's what I call the psychological climate paradox. Uh, the paradox that the more certain the science, the less uh, engaged and concerned the, the, the general public becomes. And it is a phenomenon peculiar to rich Western countries in particular. And the, the, the correlation is even strongest among um, English-speaking countries. Really? Right, right. Like Australia, US, Canada and UK. Right, right. So what's going on? Uh, <laughs> yeah, what's going on? <laughs> exactly. That was my question too. So I scratched my head and uh, started reviewing studies. Um, so I dug up something like three to four hundred studies from peer reviewed from psychology, social anthropology, sociology, um, neurosciences, um, and. Um, it seems that research is kind of converging on a uh, consensus. So we have a social science consensus on climate communication in addition to the climate science consensus on the, uh, when it comes to the, 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 this climate system itself. And um, in my book, um, what we think about when we try not to think about global warming, I try to give a very clear synopsis or or a summary of, of these uh, 300 studies. Uh, so I condensed the findings down to about five main inner defenses that are activated in climate in people when they hear news and fact about the climate coming uh, straight at them. Yes, uh, yes. And if you will, I could give a short resume or... or yes, or, why don't you do that? Yeah, that'd be brilliant. Just, yeah, the, the headlines. <laughs> the headlines, <laughs> and then we can delve in yes, wherever you want. Yes, yeah. Um, the first is uh, distance or psychological distancing, meaning that uh, the general public perceives the climate issue as being distant in several dimensions. First, distant in space. Um, media and news and... Also, also, scientists have been speaking out about uh, Arctic ice, uh, polar bears, um, also cyclones in the Pacific or or Caribbean, and to um, most people, that's uh, far away from where they live. Also, uh, the year 2050 and the year 2100 pops up all the time, and that makes it feel distant in time because we humans are usually busy thinking about our next few weeks, not uh, the next few centuries, to put it that way. Um, third is um, 
uh, it feels distant in terms of um, uh, who is um, suffering or um, getting the impact because these are general poor people that I don't know far away from me. Richer people don't feel the impact as clearly. Uh, it's also distant when it comes to responsibility. We hear about um, these COPs, the Conference of the Parties, the international negotiations where government heads and um, and uh, corporate executives and um, negotiators keep meeting. Uh, but I can't do anything to influence these people. Um, it feels outside my circle of influence as an individual. So it feels uh, far away from me. So in this sense, um, this climate appears to be distant, psychologically distant in time, space, um, impacts and uh, responsibility. So that's the first defense. Um, and there are a number of studies that have, like with surveys and uh, and uh, focus groups and depth interviews, uh, asked people what this does to them. And many report a feeling of helplessness and also um, a kind of uh, a need to focus on nearer things. So the second defense then is um, doom, and um, that has to do with the framing of uh, science. So when Climate scientists have been publishing their model runs. It's often framed in the climate as um, the end is nigh. And um, these are incredible destructive forces and uh, catastrophe and disaster has been used uh, as a framing more than 80% of the news articles out there. Uh, the third barrier of defense inside is called dissonance. And this has to do with how people feel when they, on the one hand, know what they should do. We have new knowledge about the climate situation. On the other hand, we continue to behave as if we uh, didn't know much. So um, when there's this conflict between what we do and what we know, this is felt as an inner discomfort. We may feel like hypocrites. I care about the climate, and yet I, here I go, filling my gas guzzler up again. Um, and then people people's brains come up with all kinds of justifications to avoid that discomfort that the dissonance uh, implies. And that is like, uh, well, I could say my neighbor, for instance, he has a bigger car than I do, or my colleague, she flies even more than I fly, or um, changing my diet doesn't amount to much if I'm the only one doing so. Or I would also maybe want to doubt the climate science itself. I could say, well, climate is always changing. Uh, and thereby having an immediate psychological benefit of um, getting released from my painful dissonance. So that's why uh, misinformation sometimes is very attractive to people because it uh, lets them off the hook, so to speak. They don't have to worry or don't have to, to feel bad about their yes. lifestyles. Yes. Um, the fourth Defense is uh, denial, which has been used a lot out there in the debate, uh, often used as a pejorative about other people who are stupid, ignorant, who don't get it. Uh, it's really a much broader uh, psychological phenomenon than that. It's about how people um, are able to live with troubling knowledge as if they don't know it. So denial, psychologically speaking, refers to a state of mind where I'm maybe aware of the troubling knowledge at some level in my brain, but I live and act as if I don't. So it's a double life, so to speak. Um, and this double life may keep me safe from fear and guilt, 
but only if uh, my family or community agrees that this is an issue we shouldn't speak too much about, or if we do, we, it's better to, to ridicule it. So in this way, there's a social contract uh, not to raise that troubling knowledge, both uh, inside myself and in others. So we avoid that topic at dinners, to put it that <laughs> simply. Uh, and it's, it deni this, this psychological denial is very common. Uh, all cultures or societies have issues um, about which they agree not to speak. And for subcultures and, and a lot of people in Western rich democracies, uh, we have this level of cultural denial as well. Right, right. And finally, it's uh, uh, the fifth barrier after distance, doom, dissonance and denial comes uh, identity. And the identity barrier has to do with my, your personal values, your outlook to the world and how, you're, how you see yourself in society and what, what's, your, um, what's your position on, on the balance between the market and government, for instance. Uh, and what we find is that people whose identity um, is uh, identified with uh, individualism, uh, free market, uh, freedom for the individual, and the government is then seen as something taking your freedom away, um, then there's a tendency clearly to want to um, distance themselves from climate science. And that comes across because if climate scientists come along saying what we need is uh, more regulation and more carbon taxes, uh, that is uh, a bigger government, then um, I would probably have less trust in that kind of science because I don't like the recommendations coming out of it and they go counter to my values. And we know from psychology very well that if there's a conflict between the values and, my, uh, and the facts, then the facts lose. And I will spend my intellect and knowledge uh, coming up with all kinds of reinterpretation of the facts so that they match my values after all. Right. Right. Wow. That's a pretty wide ranging, uh, interlocking <laughs> uh, series of, uh, of, of barriers. Um, now, I guess, um, well, you know, we're, we're not uh, always rational, are we? Um, do these are these barriers any different from any other kinds of challenges that we face um, generally? Yeah, I would say so. Um, there are characteristics of the climate um, problems we have that are, so to speak, tailor-made to avoid our evolutionary and social setup as a species. So, for instance, um, fear and um, and uh, flight are, you know, very strong evolutionary powers in our limbic brain but uh, the problem with the climate is that it doesn't have like so we say a, neither a, uh, it doesn't have a clear enemy so imagine if there was one country in the world who emitted all the 40 gigatons and this country was run by a tyrant or uh, uh, some kind of um, maniac with a black moustache uh, and um, just imagine how long time it would take before countries united to bomb this guy out of existence. But uh, unfortunately, climate doesn't ha isn't ha doesn't have a clear enemy like that. It doesn't have either uh, proximity, like a, a guy coming at you down the street with a big bat and a threatening hat. <laughs> uh, so 
it's kind of there is when there is no enemy, we the fear uh, turns towards avoidance behavior. It's very different with terrorists, for instance, because you can focus your fear on them, so you get a strong us versus them attitude. Right, right, right. Now um, it's a very divisive issue, isn't it? It's very divisive, um, mm. and 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 clearly there are um, uh, different different parties communicating about this. And I guess you've got the people who are saying it's it's happening and it's terrible and we need to do something. And then you know broadly, <laughs> those that are saying no, it's not, and we don't need to do anything. Now it, it formulated in such a sim simple way, but uh, to what extent are are uh, these parties uh, aware of what? going on and to what degree are they they managing their communication strategies around this uh, insights into some of these issues you're talking about well uh, some of the problem for the environmental movement and the climate movement and the climate scientists is that they've had this um, wrong assumption about climate communications um, in the literature, it's often called the um, information deficit approach, which is that um, scientists and uh, bureaucrats and uh, activists in general have this unexamined assumption that if only people would get the information and the facts into their heads, then they would turn around and become uh, into agreement with the scientific uh, consensus. Yes. So the, the clue here is to just explain and uh, get the information out and then make it simpler, make it clearer, repeat it, get the facts out, do another study, do another report, another report, and by the end, people certainly must get it and then they will agree with us and act accordingly. Uh, and unfortunately, that's a model of communication that is uh, empirically invalid. So scientists are superstitious and when it comes to trying that model over and over again. As you say, they're superstitious. They 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 just stick with what they're doing. <laughs> yes, which is uh, ironic. And on the other side of the coin, which is very it's very unscientific to do yes. that, but it's proven empirically, like a hundred times over, it's wrong. It yes. doesn't work that way. Right, right. And and I guess you know those what what you say about the environmental movement um, to some degree. Uh, the, the the negativity as well, you know, and the way they're presenting the issues, and and, mm. and it's less often that positive visions of what kind of a world we can live in maybe have been presented. But also, what about the other side of the coin? I mean, the mm. the, the disinformation, misinformation, the abuse of information. What we've seen more recently, you've seen it in, in extreme cases and in mm. America and so forth. You talk a little bit about about their strategies there. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure if it's been conscious. I rather think it's been a, a, an issue of learning and, and uh, learning by trial. So they have been successful in activating these defenses, like the dissonance. For instance, uh, if some scientist or activist comes out, like Leonardo DiCaprio, for instance, at the Oscars, saying that uh, climate change is the most important issue, we need to solve it. And then the misinformation people love to uh, show his uh, yacht, his big house, his uh, private jet, and the same thing with Al Gore. So they can activate the dissonance that people feel inside themselves and then project it on the leading figures. Uh, and this way, activating dissonance makes people uh, have a backlash on the attitudes. So uh, we know that if... Um, 
I feel dissonance or I can see dissonance in, an, in another, then this will weaken my attitudes over time. So the knowledge components in the attitude loses vis-a-vis uh, -vis the behavior component. Um, another issue has been the identity issue, which has been very successfully activated, and I think this is very conscious, uh, building on research into memos from think tanks, etc., that if you could call it climate change rather than global warming, uh, and if you could um, attack uh, the science of being political and coming up with um, leftist um, solutions, which is bigger government, uh, more regulations, then you can make it into a political identity issue and you can uh, strengthen the polarization with it. And that's been a very conscious uh, strategy, I think, from parts of the anti-climate uh, movement and the think tanks. Right, right. So uh, you, what you're saying is the environmental movement, the climate movement, they need to do better. They need to communicate better. And, and yeah. what, what are a few key things? How, how are they doing? Your book's been out for a couple of years. I guess you've been talking about it. There's this research which you mentioned, which uh, is around as well. Um, mm. How's it going? Um, actually, uh, I'm quite optimistic. Um, I, unfortunately, I don't have the numbers to back these claims up. Uh, but it seems to me that there has been a tidal change since 2013 when the IPCC Work Group 1 came out. Uh, I now both observe and hear uh, a much better balance when it comes to the doom versus supportive framings. Um, just to give you a short recap of what we know works, because in this literature, which is called the science of science communication, <laughs> where you study uh, science communication scientifically. Uh, I think it's a great field, um, very important. I think more, sci more, sciences, more scientists should learn about it. What, what we find here is that there are five solutions or strategies that are well documented and evidence-based to work on creating engagement in people. Uh, and again, I'd simplify this to five main um, words and solutions. Uh, it's uh, making it social, um, it's uh, supportive framings, it's uh, simple, it's storytelling, and it's um, signals. Uh, so what we know works is that if um, we can activate social norms uh, up that are supportive to uh, solutions, then it will spread like um, rings in the water. Uh, if I believe my neighbor or my friends are going to do to take climate action, for instance, with electric cars or with solar panels or reducing their food waste or whatever, conserving power, then I um, will do too. Um, so one study, for instance, from um, Bob Cialdini, a professor of psychology at Arizona, he took like 4,000 households and then had the first 1,000 households um, ask them to conserve power uh, because it's sustainable, it's good for the earth, and uh, it's the right thing to do. The second group were instructed to cut their power consumption and save energy because it's uh, good for their children and good for their grandchildren. So think about the future generations. The third group of 1,000 households were told 
uh, if they cut their power consumption, they'll save money on their power bill. So you'll end up uh, better for your wallet. And the fourth group were told uh, how much power they used uh, compared to their neighbors. And um, if you ask most people what would be the most effective condition, is it sustainability, is it um, the coming generations, is it your wallet, or is it uh, what the neighbors are doing? I guess many would vote for the wallet, uh, but the um, evidence is very clear when it comes to motivation, it's the neighbors. So each time we run that study, uh, the group that is um, compared to the behavior of the neighbors comes up with the deepest and the longest decline in um, power or water use or whatever metric you, you, you measure them on. So that shows the, the power of social norms and just confirms as we know that human, humans are a flock animal. So uh, we're, you can see it breaks the distance barrier in the sense that it no longer feels far away from me in time, space and impact, but suddenly my neighbor is doing something with it. Now it's near, personal and urgent. Yes. Um, the second solution we know works is um, shifting doom to more supportive frames. Uh, and there is some research from psychology that says there is a positivity ratio of three to one. So to put that into practice, we should have at least three supportive messages or framings about the climate change issue on solutions for each one climate threat that you bring up. So we should speak about how we can um, make people's health better, that's a supportive frame, um, better safety in our society with avoiding climate change, and also, of course, lots of opportunities for jobs and economic growth. That's the green growth solutions or the green innovations. So health, safety and uh, innovations are three framings that create engagement rather than have people tuning out. And it's not to say that you shouldn't mention the climate threat, but it's the balance it's all about. So three to one, not 80% or like 80% uh, disaster as uh, used yeah. to be the case uh, just five to 10 years ago. Um, and the third is um, to make behavior simpler. And this is to apply behavioral economics um, behavioral interventions where we simplify the choice architecture so that doing the climate friendly thing becomes a default. Yes. For instance, um, if uh, at a, to bring down food waste, for instance, one can um, reduce the plate or the box size a little. So when people serve themselves, it's, it's more difficult to over-serve yourself. And that is proven to bring it down with 20% the food waste. So it just looks fuller on the smaller plate, but half empty in the bigger, so people take more than they need. So that's just one example, and there are hundreds of green nudges like this, applications of uh, behavioral science. And then we need a better narrative, uh, better storytelling, that's the fourth solution. And we need to explain or envision or imagine how a future society looks that is better than one we have yet uh, low emission society. So how do we transform cities to um, make better lives for the citizens but lower footprint at the same time? How does that look? And can we tell stories and imagine it in a positive way that makes people want to actually live there? 
So that's more like I have the dream approach of Martin Luther King rather than the uh, we're all going to hell approach of uh, classical Christian climate uh, communicators. Um, finally, this is signals solutions, which has to do with um, what signals we use, because if people want to keep up their engagement, they need um, frequent uh, feedback on how well they're doing in their problem solving. Uh, they don't need free, frequent feedback on the ppm levels of co2 concentrations in the atmosphere or the um, and the decadal rate of sea level rise or average global surface temperature change per century these kind of signals just doesn't work to motivate people they're too far too abstract too invisible so to make it the the other extreme would be like in oslo where we have street signs showing uh, how many people bike here today and um, so when you pass that sign, it counts you as well. So it goes from 501 to 502 when you passed. And in that way, you can also compare how many biked here last year, uh, this year, or together. So we feel that we're making um, a change when we contribute doing stuff. You could also do that in our bank statements that they came with a CO2 footprint attached, and you could compare the footprint to last year's consumption or, the next, or, your, or your friends or your neighbors or whatever. So yes. by making signals feel near personal and um, relevant to, the, to, the, to my circle of influence, we can um, help people keep up their motivation. And this brings me back to your question. Can I see any change? And actually I do. I think, I think now we are seeing a shift in how climate communications are being rolled out by reflective uh, practitioners. Uh, so it's very encouraging. And also the latest... Uh, poll survey so from the Pew Global who does surveys in the US um, it seems that um, in 2016-17 the level of concerned people are now higher again than uh, it was at the height in 2007 when the uh, previous peak was almost as high as it was in 1990. Right, right, That's so very interesting. Mm. Very, very, very useful tools. What I was going to ask, and I'm mindful of the time, just a couple more questions if I might, but um, in the same way that there are defenses that we all have when we think about, or don't think about, try not to think about climate change, do scientists have defenses as well? When you say to a scientist, well, um, you know, you realize, of course, that uh, there are better ways of communicating, <laughs> or, or this isn't really an effective way of communicating. Do they have mm. uh, some inbuilt defenses as scientists? and how they uh, approach this yes unfortunately um, and I think for those who haven't studied like psychology or sociology or social anthropology it's like um, falling prey to this um, enlightenment idea of what humans are that we are rational information processors and we are truth seekers um, and then they, they make themselves vulnerable to um, becoming disappointed when uh, humans turn out to be anything else than that rational evidence weighing um, individual that the science has taught you to believe. Or, uh, so yes. also, I think many scientists are may, might know these things, of course, they are very intelligent people, uh, yet it's hard for them to leave their academic role because 
they are also social animals in the sense that your peer scientists will start to critique you if you come up with storytelling or or uh, become too personal. Your training is kind of focused on bringing the personal equation out of your all your articles and all your thought to kind of stick with the logic numbers and 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 uh, hypothetical deductive method and analytics. And then in order to reach out, you have to let that go. And that makes you vulnerable for a, from a peer uh, review, peer uh, status kind of thing. Right. Suddenly you, yes. you become this, this guy who, who just <laughs> yes. go and, and simplify things too much with uh, journalists or you hang out with the TV guy people and, um, and what you're saying is ridiculous because it's not precise enough on television and all these kind of things. So there's both this internal expectation that humans should apply, should confirm to the rational uh, decision maker paradigm um, because you do so yourself when you're a scientist and then the other is the community of scientists which have their own social rules and not always conducive to, to getting the message out. Fascinating, it's very interesting. Uh, uh, not very much time and a very big topic I'm just about to address but um, the, the, you talk about the science of science communications, I'm just wondering about the science of mass media science communications as such, if such a thing mm. could be said to exist because uh, what is the role of the mass media? Because, you know, scientists and how they communicate and what they communicate is clearly important, but for a lot of people it's through the mass media. And, um, and I wonder here about, you know, the, the, the kinds of uh, the fossil fuel industry or people who have an agenda, an economic agenda, tied into particular arguments and so forth. Mm. Um, well, I don't know where you're based, but uh, I'm sure you remember the climate gate uh, debacle or yes. the climate gate uh, thing, which was really created not by uh, anything substantial, but only by uh, framing, framing effects. And this thing about being aware about framing effects is something that uh, I would hope uh, scientists would have a kind of compulsory course in the science of science communication. Yes. <laughs> so, um, it, it's you see, in the media, it's impossible um, to not have your message framed in some way. It's the job of the journalist and the job of the desk and the job of the people who find the images to find some framing or perspective on whatever you're saying. Uh, if then as a scientist you believe that, oh, my job is just to bring this report out uh, and just to state the fact and the truth to, or, or the approximation to truth uh, to the journalists, uh, and then it ends there, then you're setting yourself up to be abused by the media. And the media isn't nice. I'm, I'm not defending the media in any way. They're lazy and they're... Um, of course, uh, out to sell more than serve um, any tr kind of truth or or um, scientific content transmission transmission to individuals. So they will always look for some kind of frame, and if you're not um, proactively engaged in getting the right frame. For your content, then the possibility or the likelihood for failing is pretty high. Right. So, yes. what I would advise is to for scientists to read, and we saw this example now just recently with a new report that came out of Cicero. I don't know if you know, um, or several scientists, the one of likelihood of achieving the 1.5 target after all. 
have you been following that? It's just a, little a few bit, days yes. ago. Yeah, yeah, vaguely. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so they said, well, actually, there is. Uh, it's very hard, but it's like a um, possibility to achieve the 1.5 um, target after all. Uh, and then it was quickly reframed uh, by the Antic people as being about, uh, oh, they were wrong. Now they're finally, these climate scientists are admitting that it's, um, it's uh, their previous, um, their models have been wrong all the time. So there's no reason to do anything because the models are wrong all the time. Now, um, and there's a big debate about this in, in, the, in the communication literature, uh, how we balance what's called the uncertainty framings uh, versus the risk framings. So because they came out and or were used as an uncertainty, because scientists are experts in uncertainty, we can dis discuss error bars and error margins and uncertainties up and down, we're very good at it. But what people then in general hear is that, oh, they don't know, or they were wrong. Um, which is, of course, a complete misinterpretation of the uncertainty issue from a scientific point of view. Uh, but if we are better in communicating risk, uh, then you can avoid uh, that uh, uncertainty frame, because risk is really uh, uncertainty times impact, and uh, the impacts haven't changed much, so the risk is, is the same. So uh, what we could say is that the risk mitigation is probably a little bit better now. Uh, and being aware of how, what pros and cons the um, risk frames has compared to the uncertainty frames could help scientists in communicating better with journalists. Of course, also avoiding the doom frame uh, and starting with the solutions uh, and then coming to the, the threats a little bit further down. Right, very good advice, um, a big topic, and uh, thank you so much, Per, today for uh, taking the time to share the fruit of your insights and research, and um, thank you for uh, it all, and I wish you the very best of success in the future. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.